0: All right, we're going to complete the book of Haggai tonight, Haggai chapter 2, the last three verses. Remember, we talked about the fact that the book of Haggai has four sermons that Haggai preached over a period of four months in 520 B.C., 520 years before before Christ, and uh, as the nation of the the remnant of Jerusalem, the remnant of Judah had returned to the land and so uh, tonight we'll look at the last of those four messages preached by the prophet Haggai. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 20, a short message and a message addressed only to Zerubbabel, the governor. And so uh, Haggai chapter 2, verse 20. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheetal, says the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you says the Lord of hosts. And so this is the last of four sermons that Haggai preaches on the period of four months, and you'll notice he preaches this sermon the very same day that he preaches the third, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, the 24th day of the ninth month. Uh, Verse 20, the 24th day uh, of the ninth month, he preaches this sermon to Zerubbabel. And uh, uh, the 24th day of the ninth month was to be a great day, a, a turning point for the people, for the for the remnant of Israel that had returned to Judah to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. This would be a turning point, a day of revival, a day of revitalization. The Lord had said, from this day, I will bless you. And that's the message we looked at last week. And we remember in the book of Haggai, the people had returned uh, returned to the land over 20 years before Uh, They returned with great excitement and uh, built an altar to the Lord and resumed the sacrifices and laid the foundation of the temple with great joy and great anticipation. And yet, when they got there, they they found opposition. There were those who opposed the the building of the the temple and rebuilding of the city, and they stopped. They stopped the work. And when when they stopped, they began to pursue other priorities. Uh, They were committed... Not necessarily to building a house for the Lord, but building what? Their own houses. And so they used their limited resources to to build their their own homes. And God sent His Word through Haggai and Zechariah, the the prophet whose book will begin next week. These two guys preached at the same time and had similar messages to to call them to consider their ways. And uh, these prophets called the people to look at what they had been doing to look at their way of life, to look at their choices, and to look at the results, and to, uh, uh, to, to consider if the way they had been doing things, the things they've been doing were working out for them. And so, uh, uh, they called them to, uh, to, to consider their ways. Have you been faithful to the Lord, and have you been faithful to His covenant? Have you loved the Lord above all else? Have you loved the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength? Had they lived according to the covenant? Consider your ways. And if you haven't lived according to the covenant, should you expect covenant blessings? If you're not fulfilling your side of the agreement, the, uh, should the Lord be fulfilling His side and giving you blessing? Or if you're not living in obedience to the covenant, shouldn't you expect covenant curses? And so... Uh, uh, guy tells them to consider their ways and to look at the results and to think that uh, maybe these difficulties that you're experiencing aren't just because of bad luck. Maybe these difficulties that you're experiencing aren't are, are just lack of effort. In fact, he said you've worked really hard and you've got little to show for it. Maybe these difficulties that you're experiencing aren't just a result of, of climate change or a drought. Maybe, maybe these results are... are because of God's discipline, maybe you're not living according to the covenant, and so you shouldn't expect covenant blessings. Instead, you should expect covenant curses. Maybe, maybe the bad circumstances you're you're experiencing are the Lord's righteous, just ju- judgment and His just response to to your violation of the standards of the covenant. Uh, You know, you entered into a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. You're not living up to the covenant. You shouldn't expect covenant blessings. You should expect covenant curses. Consider your ways. And through the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, the Lord stirred the hearts of Zerubbabel and and the priest and, and stirred the hearts of the people, and they began to build. They began to work on the temple. They began to rebuild. And about a month after they began to rebuild, what happened? They stopped. They, got, they, they became discouraged. They got discouraged. And they, they, uh, they, they didn't have the same resources that Solomon had. And they were disappointed in the results of their work. The temple wasn't as beautiful and as glorious as they hoped it would be. They were comparing the house that they were building with the one that Solomon had built with a lot more resources. And uh, uh, the, the temple that they were building seemed like nothing in comparison to the one that Solomon had, had built. And so, uh, Haggai preaches another message and tells them to be strong, to continue the work, and to not be afraid, because the Lord is in their midst. Uh, and, he, and Haggai also promised them that the, uh, the glory of this humble temple would ultimately be greater than the glory of the former one, the one that they remembered. And so, he encouraged them. And so, they began to work again. But evidently, they began to work with the wrong heart. They were working, but they weren't devoted to the Lord and His glory. And uh, uh, their desire was not holiness and purity. They didn't have clean hands and pure hearts. And as a result, the work that they were doing was defiled. Their defiled hearts was defiling the work. And so uh, even though they were building the temple, they were still in violation of the covenant because they weren't loving God with their whole heart, with all their soul, with all their strength. And even though they began to work, they weren't working with pure heart, their work was defiled and their conditions weren't improving. They were still experiencing difficulty. Uh, They would go and try to find uh, uh, 20 epas of grain. They'd only find 10. They'd go to draw 50 baths of wine. There were only 20. And there was blight and mildew and hail and the labors of their hands. And so, even though they were working building the temple, their circumstances didn't it didn't change. They weren't experiencing covenant blessings. They were still experiencing covenant curses. And the Lord's discipline did not cause them to turn. They were they were uh, working hard, and yet they were not. They had not. Return to the Lord. All of the discipline, all the difficulties had not resulted in repentance. And so, Haggai preaches his third message. And in that message, he gives a message of hope. The 24th day of the ninth month would be a turning point. It would be a turning point. And it's interesting, as we read through that message last week, the, the, the prophet doesn't mention anything. The Lord, through the prophet, doesn't mention anything about the people turning. He doesn't say anything about repentance. He doesn't say anything about anything that they do. He simply says, from this day forward, verse 19, from this day forward, I will bless you. The, the turning, the change, the revitalization is a result of God's sovereign mercy and God's sovereign grace. The Lord's kindness. The Lord's free choice to bless the people whom He had chosen. He would Bless them because they were his people. He would bless them because he had chosen them. There was nothing in them or nothing about them that deserved his blessing. It was a display of God's unconditional sovereign mercy and grace. And he simply said, from this day forward, I will bless you. The 24th day of the ninth month would be a great turning point. It would be a time of revival and revitalization that was a result of God's mercy and grace and God's kindness to the people. It's not based on their performance, but His kindness and His grace toward them, as we saw last week. And in tonight's text, we see that the blessing that the Lord promises will extend far beyond grain and new wine and far beyond the figs and the pomegranates and the olives that He promised. The blessing that he promises is going to go far beyond the temporary, the temporal, the physical needs that they have. In verse 19, he says, from this day, I will bless you. And then in verse 20, verses 20 through 23, he points to a future day and a future blessing, an ultimate blessing. So, So he says, from this time forward, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless you with these temporary things. But I am also going to bless you in the future with eternal Blessings, and so that's the message in verses twenty through twenty-three that we read earlier. And to to whom is this last sermon addressed? Zerubbabel. Who is he? Zerubbabel is the governor, and who installs Zerubbabel as the governor of Judah? Well, all authority comes from God, but who was the uh, who is the authority? Yeah, yeah, so all all people in authority come from God, but. <laughs> <laughs> but who made Zerubbabel governor in the earth? King Darius, yeah, King King Darius or Darius, however, whichever way you want to pronounce it. Um, and so, so the king, the Persian king, appointed Zerubbabel governor under God's sovereign will. Uh, but the, the the king, and so he was governor, and and because he was appointed by Darius. His authority was subordinate, lined up under the, the pagan king. So he wasn't king, he was governor, but his governor, his, his, uh, his authority was sub, uh, underneath that pagan king, subordinate to, subject to the pagan king. If the pagan king put him into office, the pagan king could also take him out of office. And so Zerubbabel was governor. He'd been appointed by the king of Persia, and he was the highest-ranking government official in the land, but his power was derived from and subordinate to the pagan, heathen king of Persia. And so uh, he was governor, but Zerubbabel was also a descendant of David. Zerubbabel was a descendant of David, and God had promised David that his descendants would sit on the throne in Israel, but at this time... The king was Darius and not Zerubbabel. And, uh, and so God speaks to Zerubbabel, the governor. And notice in this message, God's, you know, who the actor is. The repetition of I will. I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the think- strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots. And those who ride in them, the horses and their riders, shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. So you see, you see God's promise. The Lord will take initiative. The Lord will act. His people are not called to do anything. Zerubbabel was not called to do anything, except wait for the Lord to act. I will, says the Lord. And the and uh, and the Lord returns to the promise that He made in Haggai's second sermon in, in chapter two, verse six. Chapter two, verse six, Haggai says, "For this, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while. I will shake heaven and earth." And notice in this last message, He says the same thing: "I will shake." heaven and earth in a little while from this day forward i'm going to bless you with temporal temporary blessings but a day is coming in a little while when i will shake the heaven and earth and we talked about the fact that when he preached this before he was talking about taking the 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 gentile kingdoms and turning them upside down and shaking them so all the coins fell out of their pockets and uh all those resources would be used to to build the kingdom of god and and so again he shakes he says i'm going to shake the the heaven and earth. The Lord will shake heaven and earth and overthrow thrones and kingdoms. And He will do it so that the kingdom of the Lord will be established. The kingdom of the Lord, the kingdom of Israel, and the throne of David will be reestablished. The pagan nations, the pagan kingdoms, the pagan thrones will be torn down and the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of David will be restored. And the word translated overthrow here is the same word that God uses when He describes the destruction, the outpouring of His wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the Lord is going to pour out His wrath on the nations. He will judge the nations and restore glory to Israel. And uh, and in making the promise of the future... I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. And so in speaking about God's blessing to Israel in the future by overthrowing their enemies, He actually makes two historical allusions. He goes back to historical events in the history of Israel, to point to what he will do in the future. And so, uh, the first, I will overthrow the chariots, those who ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down. What does that bring to your remembrance? What, when we think of horses and chariots being overthrown by the Lord, What what comes to mind? The Egyptians, that's exactly right. The Exodus, Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. So the first historical reference, it goes back to the Exodus. And you remember in uh, Exodus chapter 14, uh, God has visited the plagues upon Egypt and finally Pharaoh has decided that he would uh, let the people go and they plundered their neighbors, they got gold and resources and they left the land. And then what happened to Pharaoh's heart when the people left? It became hard, and it changed. And he mounted his men up in chariots, and they began to pursue Israel, pursue the slaves. And so this is Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter fourteen. the uh, the 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 nation goes out, and uh, the uh, the Egyptians begin to pursue them, and that's when. Uh, uh, God tells Israel through through uh, Moses in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall see no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And then uh, the Lord opened up the Red Sea, uh, the... Uh, people of Israel walked through on dry land. Uh, chapter 14, verse 23 of Exodus. The Egyptians pursued them and went after them into the midst of the sea, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And it came to pass in the morning, uh, watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. He took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, "'Let us f- flee from the face of Israel,' For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord you know, told Moses to stretch your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the hand over the sea, when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea." The waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. And so here, uh, uh, Haggai makes this historical reference. Just as the army of the Egyptians was overthrown, the horses and chariots were thrown down, so will it be in the future. And in the same way, and and even the, the Egyptians acknowledged, the Lord is fighting for Israel and against us. Israel, all they're doing is walking across on dry land. They're not doing anything. And Moses told them to stand still, to keep their peace, that the Lord would fight for them. They weren't going to do anything except go forward. And the Lord was going to fight for them. And even the Egyptians recognize that in verse in verse uh, 25. And then uh, after they come across to the to uh, they, they begin to sing a song and they sing about the Lord's deliverance. Chapter 15, Exodus 15, 1. Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed glorious. The horse and its rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war, The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also were drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. And so, Haggai is saying, just as in the past, when all you had to do is stand still and keep your peace, the Lord fought for you. And the Lord overthrew your enemies. In the same way in the future, all you gotta do is stand and watch. You stand and watch. Don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will not see, you will not see again, no more forever, Moses said. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. All they had to do was stand and watch. And so Haggai says, It's what it's going to be in the future. Stand and watch. The Lord will fight the Lord will overthrow your enemies and establish your your throne. Alright, so the first allusion is Exodus in verse 22. The second one, everyone by the sword of his brother. Now this might be a less prominent. Anybody know uh, what that historical allusion might be? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is. This would be... The battle led by the reluctant general named Gideon. Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. Remember in the book of Judges, there was this cycle. The people would sin against the Lord. The Lord would send an enemy nation to come and oppress them. Uh, there would be hardship and the Lord's discipline. The people would cry out to the Lord for help. The Lord would raise up a deliverer. And the deliverer would come and rescue the people from the hand of the enemy. Well, in Judges chapter 7, the enemy is the Midianites. The Midianites. And the Midianites were... were. Uh, Oppressing Israel, they had large numbers of troops and large numbers of livestock. They would come to Israel and the livestock and the troops would eat all of the the produce of the land. There was no sustenance for the people of of, of Israel. They were oppressed by the Midianites and uh, they cried out to the Lord. And the Lord called Gideon, a reluctant deliverer, to raise an army and to go against the Midianites. Gideon raised an army and what did the Lord tell him about his army? Your army's too big. There's too many of you. There's too many soldiers. If if you go into battle with that many soldiers, you might take credit for the victory. There's too many of you, and so the Lord sovereignly reduced Gideon's army. He said, "If anybody's afraid, y'all go home." And twenty-two thousand of them went home. <laughs> and then uh, and the Lord said, "You still got too many. Go down, uh, go down to the creek, and only uh, only take this this small number." The ones who, uh, 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 I'm sorry? <laughs> yeah, the one who lapped the water like a dog laps, you will set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink, the number who lapped putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men. So that's the ones that they kept. The ones who would be on their knees, pick up the water in their hands, and, and not lap like a dog. The ones who lapped like dog had to go to the house. But these, they kept them. 300. So there's 300 of them. And so so the Lord reduced the army to 300 men. And the night before the battle, Gideon snuck down uh, toward the camp and heard one of the enemy soldiers talking about a dream that he'd had. And so he hears this enemy soldier telling his buddy, his battle buddy, his foxhole mate, uh, about the dream that he had. And his buddy, his battle buddy, says, Well, that dream means that the Lord has given the whole camp and all of Midian into the hands of Gideon. And the army of Israel. And so Gideon hears that and he's encouraged. And so he goes back and he tells the men, he tells all the men that uh, uh, to arise, the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and he armed them. He armed all 300 of those men with a trumpet, an empty pitcher, and a torch. So he got 300 men, they all got a trumpet, They got an empty pitcher and a torch. And he told them, he said, okay, we're going to go to the edge of the city and I want you to take the empty pitcher and put it over your torch to to conceal the light. And, And when I blow the trumpet, I want everybody to blow their trumpet, smash the pitcher and let the light shine and everybody shout the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And so that's what happened. They go to the edge of the camp Gideon blows his trumpet. Three hundred men blow their trumpets, smash their pitchers, light their torches, and listen to what happens next. Verse 21 of Judges 7. Every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. And when the three hundred blew their trumpets, the Lord set set every man's sword against his companion through the whole camp. And so none of Gideon's army had swords. But the Midians killed each other with their swords. He set the swords of all the men against himself. Everyone died by the sword of his brother. And so that's what Haggai says is going to happen again. And so Gideon goes tell the people. He says, you know, really all you got to do is be a spectator. Go blow your trumpet. Break your pitcher. Let your light shine. Shout the sword of the Lord in Gideon and watch the Midianites kill each other. <laughs> he said, you're just going to be spectators. And so in both of these events, the Lord is the warrior and His people are spectators. All you got to do is stand and watch. All you got to do is stand and watch the Lord fight for you. Now, the, the army of Gideon, they did pursue the defeated enemy and make sure the defeat was complete and total. But the main, the main battle... Y'all just stand and watch as the Lord fights for you. And so that's what Haggai says. That's what's going to happen in the future. Just like the Lord fought for Israel, destroyed the army of Egypt, throwing the horse and the rider and the chariot into the sea, and just as the army of Midianites, he turned every man's sword against his companion, his battle buddy, that's exactly what's going to happen in the future when I shake the heaven and the earth. And so in both the historical allusions made by Haggai in this passage, the Lord is a warrior, and all his people have to do is stand and watch. He doesn't call his people to take up the sword against their Persian oppressors. He doesn't tell his nation that you've got to take up arms in rebellion against the pagan king. They are not to revolt. They are not to have a revolutionary war but they are to wait they are to wait and they are to watch when the Lord comes the Lord himself will overturn the political order the Lord himself will overthrow these pagan nations the Lord himself will destroy these thrones all his people have to do is wait and to watch for the day that the Lord Himself will fight for them, and uh, and Persia, you know, Persia, who is the immediate oppressor or the authority over them, you know, Darius has been very kind to these people, and uh, and been a gracious ruler, but a ruler still he is, and and here, Lord doesn't say I'm just to go overthrow Persia, but he uses kingdoms plural. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. And so he's not just talking about Persia. He's talking about the whole world. All thrones, all kingdoms will be overthrown. And the kingdom of God will remain. And the kingdom of God will be ruled by the one who sits on the throne of David. Because in uh, verse 23, he, he speaks... that. He's already spoken to Zerubbabel. In verse 23, in that day says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant the son of Shealtiel says the Lord. Now something interesting just about every other time that Haggai has addressed Zerubbabel, he has said Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel governor of Judah. But notice here he says Zerubbabel my servant, son of Shealtiel, doesn't say anything about him being the governor in this particular conclusion. Because, uh, uh, you know, he's repeatedly reported, re- referred to him as, as governor, but this, this last statement deletes the title given to him by the king of Persia. The king of Persia made him the governor. But this passage highlights God's sovereign choice of Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel this highlights the fact that Zerubbabel is a descendant of David the king of Persia might have made him governor but the lord says what the lord say he's going to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring what's the signet ring what what does that mean okay and, and and so the authority family it's idea, like, yeah. um, the word crest and everything many, many years ago. Right, and what would be the significant of the the royal family? Authority. Okay, the authority and the ring would have the, the family seal, the family crest on it, and it would be something that he would actually dip into into wax and seal a decree or a law. You know, he would would write down the royal decree, the command, the law. And he would put wax on it and then seal it with that signet ring to show that this was the, the king's authority. And so that signet ring recognized royal authority. And so the Lord says, I'm going to make you king. Uh, The signet ring was a sign of royal authority, power and authority of a king, to rule over his people and to set down laws and decrees that must be followed. And so he says, I will make you like a signet ring. Now, Zerubbabel never becomes king. Zerubbabel never rules over Israel. All of Zerubbabel's life and all the way for the next 500 years, Israel doesn't have a king of their own. You know, they're ruled by the Persians, and then the Persians are conquered by the Greeks, and then the Greeks are conquered by the Romans. And so the next 500 years, Zerubbabel never becomes king, and yet the Lord says, I will make you like a signet ring, and this is very, very significant. Um, And it's important to recognize that Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel, and he is a descendant of David. It's also significant that in Jeremiah chapter 22 the signet ring is ripped off the finger of Konaniah, also no also uh, uh called Jekoniah. go to Re- uh, Jeremiah chapter 22 Coniah Jeremiah 22:24 The Lord says, As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet of my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear. The hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out, and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. It is, is this man Coniah a despised broken idol, a vessel in which there is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord, Says, thus says the Lord. Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling Judah anymore. Alright, so Caniah has the signet ring ripped off his finger and he's sent into exile and he dies in a foreign land and his descendants are in disgrace. And so when we... Compare what when we interpret, use scripture to interpret scripture, and we look at what Haggai says and compare it with Jer- what Jeremiah has said. This is very important. Jeremiah has said that none of his descendants will sit on the throne of David and rule in Judah anymore. Now, we can interpret that two ways. We can say his direct descendants, like his children, like Shealtiel, because Kenai was Zerubbabel's grandpa. And so, she- He could be speaking to his direct descendant, Shealtu. Not going to sit on the throne of of Judah, which he doesn't. Or you could take that word, descendant, to mean that none of your descendants, none of your seed, nobody ever, forever, is going to sit on the throne of David. Which interpretation is correct? Well, how God helps us. Because he speaks to Caniah's grandpa and says, I'm going to make you a signet ring. And so he's saying that, uh, uh, that... his his dynasty is going to end. He is not going to have a son sit on the throne of Jerusalem because they will be in exile. Shealtiel will not. Zerubbabel will not. And for five hundred years there will not be a descendant of David sitting on the king of Israel, the throne of Israel. And so, uh, so, uh, but but Haggai and Jeremiah a little bit later, Jeremiah later in verse five says, Behold, the days are coming, of, of chapter 23, the next chapter. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And in his days Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell safely in his name. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And so Jeremiah indicates that, yeah, Kaniah is not going to have a direct descendant, a child sitting on the throne of Israel, and yet God will raise up from David, one who will sit on his throne. And then Haggai says the same thing, that the, the, the line of David will be preserved. The line of David will be preserved. And Zerubbabel, the descendant of Shealtiel, the descendant of Caniah, the descendant of David, through Zerubbabel, that line will be preserved. The line of David will will be preserved. And though Zerubbabel will never himself serve as king, the line, the royal line, will be preserved through him. And why is that? Is it because Zerubbabel is a good guy? Is it because Zerubbabel was a great leader? Is it because Zerubbabel was strong and powerful? Because he's good looking? Because he's wise? Is that why God will make him a like a signet ring? Because there's something within Zerubbabel that is worthy? What does the text say? Why? I chose you. God's sovereign grace. Not anything about Zerubbabel. It's like he's not blessing Israel because of anything in them. I'm going to make you signet ring like a signet ring. The royal authority is going to come through you, but not because of who you are. Because I have chosen you, says the Lord, God's sovereign grace. I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. And so by God's sovereign grace, he will overthrow the kingdoms and thrones of the earth and establish his kingdom and put the king of kings on the throne of all thrones. That's God's promise to Zerubbabel through Haggai. The Lord says, I will shake the Earth and by God's sovereign grace he will overthrow the kingdoms and thrones and establish his kingdom and put his king the king of kings on the throne of thrones and and just uh, so because you, you might be interested Matthew Matthew chapter one verse 12 Matthew chapter one verse twelve and after they were brought to Babylon Jeconiah the same one as Coniah or Jekoniah, Jeremiah calls him just Coniah, begot Shealtiel, Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abahud, Abahud begot Eliakim, Eliakim begat Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begat Akim, A- A- Akim begot Eliud, Eliud begot Eleazar, Eliezer begot Methan, and Methan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So Zerubbabel right there in the line of G- G- the, the line of David, leading to Jesus. And the Lord said He would shake the earth. And in Matthew chapter twenty-seven, about five hundred years. After you know, he he told through Haggai, in a little while, I will shake the earth. And five hundred years later, in Matthew chapter twenty-seven, Matthew chapter twenty-seven, verse fifty, we read, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were Raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And so the earth was shaken. That's Matthew twenty seven fifty through fifty four. The Lord shook the earth in the death of Jesus in the establishment of the descendant of David who would bring the kingdom of God and sit on the throne of thrones. And then well, the Lord shook the earth again three days later. Verse, chapter 28, Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning. His clothing was white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. So Haggai said the Lord would shake the earth. He would overthrow the kingdoms and authority. And Jesus died on the cross and the earth shook. And then Jesus rose from the dead and the earth shook, defeating all the power and authority of the Roman Empire as He rose from the dead. And so the kingdom of God is already. The Lord shook the earth and the death and resurrection of Jesus. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. He's not completely overthrown all those thrones and all those kingdoms and all those authorities, but a day is coming uh, when the Lord will once again fight for his people. Uh, turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him out on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings and flesh of captains and flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against the army, his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And so the Lord promised, I will shake heaven and earth and I will overthrow the kingdoms of the, of the world and establish my kingdom. And I will overthrow the thrones of the earth And the King of kings and Lord of lords will sit on the throne of thrones and rule my kingdom in righteousness and justice. The one who is descended from David will sit on the throne of David forever. And so, uh, just like in the Exodus, just like in the battle of the Midianites, God just tells His people to to wait and watch as the Lord will fight for you doesn't say, take a sword, leave a revolution, have a, have a rebellion. Wait and watch. The Lord will fight for you, and you will be but a spectator. And so wait and watch for the Lord to fight and win the battle. Haggai told the people that the 24th day of the ninth month is going to be a turning point. And it's not because of anything that you've done. It's because of the Lord's grace and mercy and kindness to you. And he tells us that ultimately he will overthrow the kingdom of the earth, establish his kingdom, where we will live with Jesus forever. And it's not because of anything that you've done, but because of his kindness and his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. So Haggai brings the people a message of hope. That though they are subordinate to the Persian king, God will... Establish his kingdom and set his king on the throne. And all they got to do is wait and watch. All right. Questions about Haggai? All right. Next week, Lord willing, we will uh, look at Zechariah, who was a contemporary, a, a, a partner in the ministry with Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah preached together at the same time Uh but Zechariah had a lot more to say, and uh, same people, same time, yep, <laughs> yep, and so Zechariah, a lot of, a lot of symbology, a lot of interpretive challenges, uh, you know, I think I said last week, Zechariah is like the revelation of the Old Testament, a lot of, a lot of symbolic language, so, so be, be a challenging study for us. All right, thoughts about Haggai? All right, you want to read ahead? Go ahead and read Zechariah. You know, we, we'll probably get a, a verse done next week. <laughs> but, but I don't know. It's the same history, so we, we might not have to do as much background since we've we've been through that with Haggai. But, all right. It really is, yeah. It's a, it's, all right, well, let's, let's pray together. Lord God we give you praise for your sovereign grace and God we're thankful so thankful that your acceptance of us is not based on our performance or anything that we do or anything about us our wisdom or our our goodness Lord that your acceptance of us is based upon simply your kindness and your grace and your mercy toward us in Christ Jesus Lord if it were dependent on us we would have no hope But, but you you chose us and you redeemed us by the blood of Your Son, Jesus. And You raised Him from the dead and He ever lives to intercede for us. And You've sent Your Holy Spirit to make us alive and to give us the strength to hear and to understand and to do that which is pleasing in Your sight. Lord, all because of Your grace. And Lord, we pray that You grant us the grace to wait or that we would be patient and that we would uh, line up under the authorities that you've instituted, even though we, we might not agree or we might not see how you're at work. Lord, grant us the grace to just wait and to be patient and to watch and to trust that the day will come when you're, you're going to fight for us and all we got to do is watch. And so, Lord, help us to be patient and, uh, and to endure and persevere. And Lord, help us to be about the things that you've told us to do and to, to do the things that you've commanded, even though we don't see how that will work, just as the army of Gideon didn't see how standing around with trumpets and pitchers and torches would win a victory. Lord, help us to be faithful and obedient to the things that you've told us to do and, and Lord, to, to watch and wait. And, Lord, we pray that you would be pleased very soon to, to send the Lord Jesus to bring your kingdom that is all ready to bring it to its completion and its consummation. We we pray the last prayer of Scripture. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it is in His name we pray. Amen.